Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. This is Juan Zarate, chairman and co-founder of Fin, along with Dave Murray, my good friend and colleague, vice president for product, product development and services at Fin. Dave, welcome. Thank you. Um, we do a lot of talking around the office around where sanctions regimes are going, and no regime and no topic gets more attention in our office than I think Russia, in part because it's just so interesting, but also it's growing more complicated and uh, more impactful for our clients. Um, One of the things we try to do with this podcast series is to provide light. There's a lot of certainly heat around the Russia issue and how the Russia sanctions regime plays into the politics of the investigations and everything happening in the U.S., we want to focus on the substance of what's happening with the sanctions regime, which we think is is fascinating and important to note. And certainly with recent developments and actions by the U.S. Um, really beginning to reshape uh, the landscape with Russia. So, Dave, why don't, why don't we start first by uh, talking to the audience about how you view kind of the risk landscape and, and where we are on the Russia sanctions regime? Thanks, Juan. So, I mean, first of all, with respect to Russia, I think one of the reasons it gets so much attention in our office is there's a massive amount of Russia sanctions exposure in the in the financial system right now. It, you know, I mean, there are other programs where there's a lot of exposure, but everyone's everyone's pretty much agreed. You know what? We're just going to get out of that of big Russian businesses that that have U.S. clients and have have other have U.S. relationships and and major dependencies and right. uh, relationships and commerce with European economies, obviously. Right. Right. So there's a so there's a lot of exposure in the system right now. And, you know, all of that's out there amid a backdrop of, I think, a tremendous amount of of geopolitical risk. Uh, You know, I think if you're if you're in Russia right now and particularly if you're thinking about expanding your business or taking any kind of a long position on on anything Russian, I think there are really three bets that you have to that you have to think about. And, you know, the first one is, is the executive branch will not, on its own, intensify sanctions against Russia and target the thing that you just invested in. Uh, you know, I think there's pretty much an even chance of that happening uh, between, now and the, between now and the end of the year. I mean, the president said that he doesn't want to do additional Russia sanctions absent a, absent a pro- provocation. Um, but, you know that could change. I mean, the president could change his could change his mind. People change their minds. And as you and I know, there is a certain degree of momentum to these programs, to the analysis that goes into the designations. And so, it'd be tied to prior uh, relations with Assad, human rights violations, uh, high end kleptocracy or corruption. Right. So you're right. You could have just the the facts of whatever is in front of the executive forcing the president and the secretary of the treasury to move out on new designations. That, that's exactly that's exactly right. Uh, you know, the second bet you have to make is that Congress is not going to force the executive to do additional sanctions, which it has done already. Which, right, which it's right. which it's done which it's done multiple times already. Um, you know, again, I think there's an even chance here. I mean, the legislative calendar at this point really doesn't favor it. Uh, because midterms are, are in November. On the other hand, there's legislation that's already moving. Uh, you know, I don't know that the leadership necessarily wants to jam its members with a with a Russia sanctions bill right now. But you know, I could also see scenarios in which it becomes an imperative for the for the leadership to move one of those bills because they have because they have members who are in tough races, and they need to they need to distance themselves from the from the president in some way. But they don't want to they don't want to give up anything core. Uh, so 
They move uh, sanctions, for example, the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, known as CATSA. Um, you know, the question of whether or not uh, the Treasury Department is robustly implementing this is uh, is sort of the pinata on the on Capitol Hill, right? It, yeah, I mean, I think the State Department, and the Treasury Department, might need to have separate correspondence offices just for the <laughs> just for the Russia sanctions. That's right. Now. That's right. Um, and so that's that's the the second risk. That's the second that that's the second bet you have to make. And you yeah. know, the first two are going to have to pay off to make this a good idea. The third one is is that is that Putin is not going to do anything provocative that forces everyone's hand, and. I think there's a very good chance that Putin's going to do something provocative that forces everyone's hand between now and the end of the year. I, you know, I think he's very deliberately um, formed and then pursued a foreign policy designed to designed to improve the standing of, of Russia on the international stage. Uh, and, it, you know, some of that has just been by weakening other people, right? So it's not improving his absolute standing. I don't think that's necessarily the goal. I think it's really a goal of improving the improving the relative standing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Russia has resisted and tried to frustrate the United States in going at U.S. interests. And, you know, I mean, one of the core things for Russia, I mean, dating back decades has been to weaken the has been to weaken the transatlantic alliance and look for look for places um, where they can cause friction between the U.S. and its and its European allies. Uh, so I think there's a very good chance that he's going to do something provocative that's going to force everyone's hands. And, you know, you're going to see additional action coming out of the Treasury Department between now and December 31st. Yeah. And one thing that's interesting, to your point, is the the sanctions focus on Russia was born out of uh, the provocations in Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea. That was sort of the core um, reason. And in some ways, especially in European circles, the sanctions are viewed as punitive uh, for purposes of, of dealing with that particular crisis. Um, but of course, in the United States, you have uh, the, the, the uh, concern around Russian cyber influence around the 2016 election. You have obviously everything you've described, which was originally constructed, and you were, you were at the Treasury at the time, Dave, in a very elegant way, I would say, to try to um, minimize blowback, economic blowback, in particular for uh, Europe, as well as to allow for diplomatic off-ramps that were more neatly constructed to allow for uh, an unwinding that was less contentious and less messy. Um, that is changing. That's changing by the nature of the provocations from Russia and the reliance on sanctions as a key, if not the only way, of demonstrating pushback against Russian provocations. Can you talk about um, that that challenge, the challenge of kind of the, the purpose of the sanctions to begin with and the purpose now, and this transatlantic challenge of, of the U.S. and the EU in that regard? Yeah, so that's an important point. There's a persistent and growing gap, I think, between the United States and the EU right now both in the composition and the list and the very premise of the programs. You know, when the, when the EU talks about the sanctions program, it's very much about the situation in Ukraine and Crimea. It's resulted in, 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 differences, in, the, in differences in the composition of lists. And, you know, those differences are going to continue to grow. That gap's going to widen. And frankly, it should, because if you're, the, if you're in the United States, you're thinking, all right, there's one set of costs I'm willing to bear to, to put pressure on Russia to change its Ukraine policy. There's another set of costs I'm willing to bear to get Russia to stop helping North Korea. 
There's another set of costs I'm willing to bear to get Russia to stop helping Syria. And it, you know, there's movement in there's movement in in Europe on the on the Syria issue. So you're going to see less of a you're going to see less of a gap there. But then there's a whole other set of costs I'm willing to bear to get Russia to stop attacking my cyber infrastructure and stop meddling in my domestic politics. Right? I mean, that's a that's a really big issue. And you know, for that, I think you're, you're going to be willing to bear very, very, very high costs. And it's not that it's not that Europe isn't worried about these problems. It's just dealing with them in a different way than the it's dealing them with them in a different way in the United States. So that's going to inform differences in the composition of the lists going forward. And you know, it's also going to create a lot of problems around unwinding. I mean, everyone was able to get around the table because whatever problems they had with Iran. Everyone agreed we're going to focus on Iran's nuclear program, and then we're going to focus on the nuclear-related sanctions. And that took a tremendous amount of discipline. I don't think the U.S. is capable of that amount of discipline around the Russia problem right now. And frankly, it shouldn't be, uh, because the other the other issues that we have with Russia, separate and apart from Ukraine, they dwarf the Ukraine problem. It, so it, it would not be a good trade for the United States to give up to give up a lot of sanctions in exchange for in exchange for Russia vacating Ukraine. Another way that the Treasury constructed these sanctions initially with respect to Russia was not just to constrain uh, the the underlying conduct to the Ukraine provocations and the Crimean annexation, but also to design these these new sectoral sanctions, right? The SSI uh, categories. Uh, to allow for a rheostatting, a, a, a gradations of um, of sanctions on types of transactions, and in particular types of debt and equity impact their access to capital and types of capital, whether it's a 30-day maturity, 60-day, 90-day. Um, that's changing, though, as well. To your point, the U.S. has grown more aggressive around uh, the use of classic sanctions, classic listing, the creation of, of entities and individuals that f- are now on a blocking list, not just, uh, you know, potentially to be sanctioned. Talk a little bit about that change too, Dave, because that I think changes fundamentally both the mechanics uh, of the sanctions as well as the downstream risk. It, right. So, I mean, when when we initially designed the program back in 2014, I mean, it was really designed to take a very specific sized bite out of the Russian economy. Um, and, you know, in the hopes that that would persuade the Russian leadership that, you know, maybe this isn't maybe maybe this policy we have in Ukraine and Crimea, maybe it's not worth that cost and maybe we should reconsider it. And, you know, also to imply that there were paths for paths for escalation. Um, in an attempt to constrain them, and at, le- at the very least, keep them keep them where they were, uh, the U.S. has continued to has continued to ex- escalate. And what the U.S. did on April sixth, it used the sectoral sanctions authority, which has previously only been used to deal with to deal with debt and equity restrictions, to actually block the assets of individuals. Um, I think this was I think this was a really important escalation because it, one, it was another way to reach out and touch. Companies. I mean, three of the people who were who were designated are the chief executives of three very large Russian firms. Um, but you know, in doing in doing that and in using the sectoral authority in that manner, it signaled that those companies themselves could be listed. I mean, it's just as a just as a matter of legal possibility, not whether it's a good idea, not whether the Treasury Department's actually thinking of it, but just a signal. You, you know, we have this weapon, and you know, we can use this in a different way than we've used it before. So Russia, you really need to you really need to think about what your next steps here are, 
because we have a lot more that we have a lot more that we can do and you know we're we're willing to do things that are going to that are going to adversely affect our own economic interests absolutely and, and we thought it was very important now dave you you helped author these obviously and um you know, seven Russian oligarchs uh, uh, sanctioned 12 companies that they control, 17 senior government officials added to the SDN list. In addition, you had three Russian business executives uh, designated uh, with ties, obviously, to, to prominent Russian uh, firms and interests, Gazprom Bank, VTB Bank, Gazprom, which aren't designated themselves, but these are executives that either uh, control or manage uh, uh, directly uh, interest in those companies, making the risk very uh, dicey when it comes to doing business with them. And so you have a whole range of new actions taken uh, that move into the realm of blocking, as you described, that begin to carve into more important financial and economic interests, frankly, for the Russian economy. And to your earlier point, begins to really draw a divide between uh, the U.S. and the EU. Um, one one element of this that, that hasn't been commented much on, we certainly did in, in one of our alerts, targets uh, for the Treasury. Talk about that just a little bit. I think that's interesting. Yeah. So they, they, they're they going into the next generation here. Uh, and, you know, I mean, these are these are people who if you if you look at the Forbes list, um, you know, from the years from 2014 to 2018 were great for them. Uh, so you know in in going out into that into that wrong i mean i think it i think it signals a i think it signals a staying power for this program um, and i suspect that's the message that the that the treasury department was trying to send it also i think dave see if you agree with me i think it also um, signals um, the importance that uh, the treasury department puts on looking at family relationships and ties uh, for for business interests of those that have been targeted in part because of this question of ownership and control interests, which is so fundamental to the um, enforcement of the sanctions regime, as well as the greater emphasis with a new regulation coming to fore in the United States on understanding ultimate who really were the drivers of the movement of assets for the regime. The same thing in Libya for the Qaddafi regime, right? So it's often the, the next generation that serves as the financial conduit and the drivers of the networks uh, that that further the corruption or further the enterprise. And this, I think, is a signal of that, too, in an interesting way, and a dovetailing of this focus on ultimate beneficial ownership, this question of control, uh, interest, and, and, and ownership in the, in the OFAC sanctions context, and then how this sanctions program will play out. Um, I think that's an interesting sort of dimension to this. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, I think there's a, there's a recognition that the, that the Earlier sanctions had perhaps accelerated estate planning among a group of Russian oligarchs who found themselves on the OFAC list. Uh, you know there are secondary sanctions in Katsa for dealing with for dealing with family members. The way that OFAC has the way that OFAC has addressed that in guidance um, is interesting because basically what they've said is if the if the family member is not themselves designated. We're not going to impose sanction, secondary sanctions on you for dealing with them, and really understand the source of funds um, for every transaction that's coming in and out of coming in and out in and out of that account. Uh, to make sure that what you don't have is a family member who's fronting for the designated family member. Dave, let's shift to kind of this question of what's next. Um, you and I are working on a, a 
paper on uh, the question of what uh, escalatory dominance looks like in the context of the use of sanctions and financial measures with a, a, Russia, a, a, a Russian economy that's still a G20 economy uh, that has huge uh, resources in oil and gas, dependencies in Europe, um, the ability to influence in all sorts of interesting ways, obviously a nuclear power and a Security Council uh, veto member, permanent member. Um, so this is, this is a, a, a serious state. Um, but there's a persistence to these sanctions and a broadening of them and a deepening of them, as we've discussed. So w what's your sense of what comes next, both it, from the U.S. side and even the Russian side, when we think about sanctions? It would hurt. It would hurt, right? But, you know, the, the power that the U.S. has that Russia does not have is, th is the U.S. can take Russian titanium away from everyone, right? Because it could say, okay, fine, well, you know, we're going to have to eat this cost on titanium. It's not going to be very pleasant for us. But the fact of the matter is you've already imposed that cost on us. We won't be imposing that cost on ourselves. So it's, it's from an economic perspective purely, it's basically free for us to impose that restriction on everybody else. So if you're not going to sell titanium to us, you can't sell it to anyone. Now, there would be diplomatic costs associated with that, so I don't want to make it sound like it's entirely free. Yeah, and there would be market supply right. issues. There would, be, yeah. there, there, would be a, there would be a lot of issues surrounding it. But, you know, if, if, if Russia is going to choose to oppose us in that, in that space, I think that, does force the, I think that does force the U.S. hand um, because I, th I think you would need to send a very clear signal right out of the gate that if, if, you, if you sanction us, we're going to retaliate back in that same channel. And our sanctions authority is a lot more powerful than yours is. Um, so, you know, let's not engage in a tit-for-tat escalation yeah. of agricultural restrictions at the, at the beginning. And they changed some things in, in their laws about extraterritorial compliance um, with, with U.S. or EU sanctions. But you really haven't seen them respond in a, in a symmetric way. I mean, you've seen Russia respond in an, in an asymmetric way. And, you know, they've looked to move back through channels where they have, a, where they have, more, of an, where they have more of an advantage. And in that regard, you see more um, cyber activity by the Russians. Is that is that something you would forecast? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I I mean, I I think that I think you're very likely to see to to see more Russian influence campaigns. And you know, I mean, of course, that that's going to be grounded in that's going to be grounded in cyber. I mean, that's where those have been grounded in the past. I mean, that that's really the that that's really the best place for them to to get the seed information. Um, that they need to that they need to push out, and it's the channel that they've been using to to push out the information that they've right. got. Let me let me ask you one more question in this regard, and something that's come up obviously in our discussions in the hallways at Finn, but also in some recent conferences that we've hosted, for example, at uh, the Center for Sanctions and Illicit Finance, on venting uh, U.S. sanctions, and in particular to gain access to capital when so much of the sanctions are around the restriction of access to capital. What do you think about? Sort of the, the emergence of a of a crypto ruble or some other platform in Russia that um, that might allow them access to capital uh, that that isn't more traditional uh, or isn't impacted by U.S. sanctions. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, when um, when Bank Russia was designated in, in 2014, and that caused Visa and Mastercard to take Bank Russia off their networks because they had to. You know, I think that was a I think that was a huge wake up call for Russia that. You know that this this payment system and an ATM technology that really we rely on um, to some degree. I mean, credit card payments aren't as big here as they are in are in Russia or aren't as big in Russia as they are here. But you know, the ATM network's a really big deal, 
and they got kicked off of it. So, you know, I think Russia immediately woke up to a vulnerability that exists in its payment systems. You know, Russia's had an online payment system for a very long time that had a instant and irrevocable settlement as one of its as one of its features. It was very, it's a, it's been a very successful payment system in the market. That may be a very important feature for a payment system in in Russia. They could deliver that through a crypto ruble. Visa Mastercard of uh, Visa Mastercard of course don't have instant or irrevocable uh Settlement. They have consumer protections around their network, which is, to me, one of the features of their network. Um, but you know, not everybody and not every economy likes that likes that system. Um, and in some places, it's actually a drag on adoption. Uh, so you know, I mean, it, it may be that a, that a that a crypto ruble actually would make more sense in the Russian market over the long term. I'm not sure about that. But you know, certainly the the threat of losing your your electronic payments at a consumer level. Yeah, I mean you're you're gonna you're gonna need to get to work right away on developing an alternative to that. And I I think regardless of what happens in the con- in the context of a crypto ruble or or virtual currencies writ large or a digital economy, it's clear that the Russians understand what these vulnerabilities are. They even discuss sanctions and isolation as if they're a, a, a niche regulatory uh, discipline, which in some ways it is. But for the Russians, this is seen as part and parcel of a broader conflict. It, it's exactly why the Russians have said that if the U.S. Congress were to move toward or the European Union were to move toward uh, de-swifting or unplugging Russian banks from the SWIFT bank messaging um, uh, system, that that would be considered an act of war, right? And there's a reason for that, and they view it that way. It's all the more reason why the listeners and all of us certainly at Finn will continue to watch very carefully the developments in the Russia sanctions program. It will no doubt grow more complicated, intertwined with the political uh, and diplomatic intrigue both in the United States and in Europe tied to Russia, uh, and will no doubt be a, an arena in which uh, the geopolitical dimensions of, of what we're witnessing around the world play out. And that's in part what makes these sanctions so interesting, so fascinating. Uh, and also so important to watch out. Until next time, have a great day.